This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same podcast. I'll be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. With me this week is Michael Farmer. How are you, sir? I'm good, David. How are you? Oh, pretty well. Still can't remember where you live. Sandy Springs, Georgia. Sandy Springs, Georgia. I know I've gotten that right in the past, but then when I reached for it, all that I found was just nothing. There was just nothing there. But presumably also in Sandy Springs, Georgia, because y'all were like actually in the same room um, a little bit ago. Uh, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, how are you, ma'am? I am doing very well. Excited to be here again. Yay. Before we get into today's topic, uh, what is interesting on the network? Let's see. Um, There's another episode of the periodic City of Man country music episodes last week talking about the first decade of the 21st century. Brad Paisley, uh, Sugar Land, that's where you live, isn't it, David? Yes, actually. We didn't talk that much about Sugar Land. Uh, I'm trying to remember who else we talked. I just listened to it this morning, and I've already forgotten it, um, which may, may not be the best sign for uh, how intelligent uh, I was on that show. Um, we also had a Profiles last week with Tim Perry, whom you interviewed, and the day before this comes out, there'll be a profiles with Gina D'Alfonso, whom I interviewed, and she she just put out a book with Plow called uh, The Gospel in Charles Dickens, which is a, uh, a kind of collection of Dickens passages illustrating particular gospel points. That was a fun conversation, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll get people to buy that book. What am I leaving out? Oh, Core Curriculum is back. So the, the first episode of the fourth series of Core Curriculum, which is on Homer's Odyssey, aired uh, last Wednesday, and the ne- next one will be out tomorrow. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think there's ten episodes altogether, and it's going to run straight through Christmas. So it's been a long time coming. Yeah, that was a fun one to record. Uh, I got to have some uh, sit on sit in on some, uh, some groups that I, I, I don't think I'd been – in quite that arrangement um, in in previous uh, seasons, so I'll always look forward to the to that. It's like a it's like our our October crossover, except it's a whole season of October crossover. Right. Yeah. So I've already started plotting out season five, which is on Aristotle. So, uh, well, after the Oof. ten episodes of the Odyssey, uh, you you have that to look forward to. Which Aristotle, dare I ask? It's the Nicomachean Ethics and the Politics, which I think we're going to do as a single series. Cool, cool. All uh, right. And then we do have another announcement about the future of this show, which is that we have found Nathan's replacement for the spring. Uh, David, would you like to uh, would you like to announce that? Sure. If you delve back into our backlog of episodes, uh, back when we had more frequent uh, listener email uh, response episodes. There was uh, a, a repeated correspondent with the show uh, who went by the moniker of Cap- Captain Finn. Uh, Captain Finn was and still is uh, Matthew Block, uh, who has had various uh, editing and uh, media, media management and and other kinds of positions. Um, between then and now, um, now he is the editor of the Canadian Lutheran magazine and has um, uh, uh, sundry other side things going on. Uh, so Captain Thin from back in the day uh, will be actually joining us on the show uh, 
during spring 2021. And I'm, I'm actually really excited with, uh, the, the varied experiences, uh, and knowledge and perspective that uh, he can bring into our conversations. Yeah. I, I think these little sabbaticals, the three of us sometimes take can, uh, can lead to some interesting conversations that we couldn't have had with the missing member just because of how things fall down. I remember the semester you were gone, we got to talk a lot more about American Lit than we normally do, just because that's what Danny and I do. So it'll be interesting to see what develops uh, when we're missing Nathan's expertise and have somebody else's instead. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Not not that I'm not going to miss you, Nathan. I'm totally going to miss you and, like, like, come back, Shane. But nonetheless, this will be uh, an... Uh, an interesting experience that that I'm that I'm looking forward to. So I, I've read a good bit of what Matthew Block has written over the last several years, uh, and it will be nice to be able to and in, in pull him into our conversations. I I look forward to it. Well, dear listeners, another conversation I've been looking forward to is this week's uh, subject which is All Saints and Our Saints. As the title might imply, this this is a conversation that I looked forward to once, and then I had the conversation, and then due to technical difficulties, we weren't able to bring that episode to you, so I get to look forward to it again. <laughs> uh, so pretty pretty happy that, that y'all agreed to you know, to, to give me a, a do-over on this one, because uh, it was, it was such a good time, dear listeners, that, uh, we were, we were really sad that that first conversation is one that, um, you won't be able to join in on, but this one, this one you can. Well, I'll start with, uh, with you, Victoria. You grew up in a particular ecclesial tradition. So what did you learn to think about saints? In that, uh, in the way that you were trained, catechized, uh, growing up, what did what did saint mean to you? Uh, so I grew up Southern Baptist, so praying to saints wasn't really something that people around me did. Um, I had some Catholic friends, so I knew that that was a practice that occurred, but I didn't know much about how or why. Uh, typically, the conversations that I heard um, using the term saints were in the context of believers who had gone on before, who had passed away, um, like the the community of saints in heaven. Um, there wasn't really an understanding, though, that the communion of saints, um, a phrase I heard in both Catholic and Protestant circles, did anything active. It was like a passive um, watching over kind of thing. Uh, interestingly, I did find out later in my life that um, my maternal grandmother, um, to whom I, I was and am very close, um, she took care of me a lot when I was a kid, um, that she occasionally prayed to saints as part of her prayer journal life. Um, I also later, um, after she died, my mom sent me a cross that had been my grandmother's. Um, at least I always thought it was a, a cross. It's gold and very beautiful. Um, but it turns out that it's a crucifix. Uh, you can only tell that it's a crucifix if you look really up close at it. Um, the the body of Christ on the cross is, is very small and, and kind of filigreed. Um, so she didn't really advertise it, but I'm starting to think because of learning those two things later in my adult life, that uh, if she wasn't a secret Catholic, my maternal grandmother was at least deeply curious about the Catholic tradition. Um, so that's it's been an interesting development for me and something I'm still kind of thinking through. Or else she knew absolutely nothing about Catholicism, I think would be the other yeah, possibility. I. I guess that's also possible, but I think she must have known a little if she like pr wrote about the Virgin Mary and St. Teresa in her prayer journal, as I know she did. She also gave you um, an old, uh, what do you call them, snow globes. Oh, with, oh the snow globe, yeah. And it's, it's Mary and the Christ child, and um, they're wearing halos. 
like Byzantine halos. So that's something too. What what church uh, what what church background was did 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 she uh, was she visibly associated with a particular denomination or background or anything? Um, she raised my mother Methodist, and okay. and she she herself um, went to a Methodist church. Um, there was, as far as I know, some consternation when my mother married my father, who was a Baptist. Um, and in, in fact, my um, to, to hear my mother tell it, I, I don't know everyone's side of this story, so no one related to me. Come at me, please. Um, but to hear my mother tell it, my father's preacher demanded that she be immersed um before they were married because she had only been sprinkled and my grandmother had a huge problem with this. Uh, I don't know how true that is or if it's true, but um, all that is to say Methodist as far as I know. Okay. Cause I, I do know, um, I do know of some Methodists who are sort of very consciously attached to the Anglican roots of of Methodism and might and might even be in some sort of fashion Anglo-Catholic Methodists huh. if such a thing if such a thing could be, um, but that that's such a I don't know maybe maybe there's a there's an enormous Anglo-Catholic Methodist community out there. My my impression has been that it's it's it's, it's kind of kind of niche, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, it, it it makes me wonder. Um, yeah. What about you, Michael? Yeah, I uh, I also grew up Southern Baptist, and I cannot remember ever talking about the saints in any way other than the the way Victoria just mentioned uh, as as a kind of descriptor of all Christians at all times. I probably had a vague sense that higher church Christian traditions used the term like St. Paul or St. John instead of just saying Paul or John. But I don't, I don't think I was ever told anything about the communion of saints or anything, um, anything like that. Any, anything that would allow us to take saints as role models, let alone to ask them to pray for us. Do, uh, do you have any memories, either of you, have any memories of being of any sort of explanations that you got to who is this St. Patrick guy or who is this St. Nicholas guy? Mm, I, that, that's a good that was question. sort of my, my earliest memories of of a saint who wasn't, you know, St. Matthew <laughs> or St. John um, is those particular days that were actually on, you know, on the calendar or figures that were on the calendar. Yeah, I don't. I, I I think I knew that Saint Patrick drove all the snakes out of Ireland, but I don't think I even knew that he was a missionary um, yeah. until late in high school. I certainly did about Saint Patrick. Um, so so I grew up in Dublin, Georgia. Oh sure. Um, a a, a okay. place deeply serious about their Saint Patrick's Day celebration. Uh, so I I remember actually. Um, one of the school assemblies that they did every year in elementary school was that um, a oh, it must have been a priest, uh, a someone from the St. Patrick Church would come and, and tell us the story of St. Patrick. Um, and it was a, a very religiously inflected story, and it was part of our St. Patrick's Week um, official school assembly. So I, I did know that just by virtue of, of going to school in that particular place. Is Dublin Does Dublin have a sizable Catholic population, Victoria? Not that I'm aware of. I didn't know if because of the obvious Irish heritage, because Savannah's heavily Catholic. Yes. That's really that's really interesting. You know, I I I, th I think I knew the, I think I knew the snakes thing, um, but I mentioned the, uh, I, I mentioned this before. Uh, I had a, a, 
and uh, an elderly. Well, we we called her we called her Aunt Catherine. The 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 particular connection with my family it was more more complex than that. But um, uh, my my Aunt Catherine was uh, was a nun, and so I knew that she she would she would refer to you know the, she would refer to the gospel writers, you know by their you know as Saint Mark and Saint John, and she would. You know, it would be St. Peter and St. Paul, and, you know, I knew that she had pictures of people in her room that, you know, now I would, now I know that that's St. Francis of Assisi, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but, but at that point, it was just the guy that has birds on. Um, you know, so, so I, I, I was exposed to more than I understood, I think. You know, at some point in high school, I must have become aware of that stuff because I know that Rich Mullins talked about St. Francis a lot. And I remember reading articles about uh, like a a rock opera he had written about St. Francis. So I I must have I must have had some exposure to it, if if only that way. But I don't remember ever being told any of that in church. Mm hmm. Rich Mullins, I think, would have converted to Catholicism if he'd lived another eighteen months. I, I don't. I don't think that's a uh, controversial statement. That's interesting. I, I don't know. My, I, I know almost nothing about Rich Mullins other than that an awful lot of adults in the churches that I grew up with um, would have had a veneration for Rich Mullins if that was the sort of thing that even evangelicals <laughs> right. did. You know, I um, <laughs> I had a saint's calendar that I used at. The school I taught at, I would I would open my class periods with uh, saint stories, and I, I used the Episcopal calendar, which I liked because it had Protestant and Catholic and Orthodox saints. And then also I added a few of my own, although I was very careful to say that they had not officially achieved sainthood. And Rich Mullins was one of the ones I did um, because I I just think he's such a uh, he's such an interesting figure for 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 that scene that we all grew up in you know he's he mm-hmm. he's playing to all these low church protestant audiences and he's this like crypto catholic um but he he's an interesting guy for a lot of reasons and maybe one day we'll do a, a show on him uh but he's only kind of tangentially related here i'm i'm certain he is the place i first heard about uh saint francis of assisi from Uh, so we've talked about what we learned, what we learned growing up. Um, but you know, as, as, you know, as we've discussed in, uh, our, our last episode about prayer, um, one of the things that's been happening in y'all's life over the past, I guess, couple of years now, two or how long? A a few years now. Um, (laughs) Depends on, depends on how long you, uh, you think a conversion takes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, there, there has been a movement, <laughs> uh, it sh- shifts in your thinking. Um, and one of the things that's apparently, you know, apparently changed is, is your thinking about saints. So what's changed most, um, what, especially what Roman Catholic, uh, teachings about the saints were the most challenging to accept, maybe which, things were most attractive and and you found like you had to very very little very little explanation on that but others needed a bit more what do you think michael so i had no problem with the kind of catalog of saints uh and and when i learned about that whenever i learned about it which it was probably college um, maybe late high school. I I was very interested in it, and you know, it, it, there's a, there's a kind of trading card quality to the uh, to, yes. the, to the catalog of saints that's very appealing to a certain sort of personality. Um, I was an Orthodox catechumen in college, and so I had already um, encountered this idea that you ask the saints to pray for you, or more informally, the way that's put is that you pray to the saints. And I, you know, um, Protestant converts to Catholicism and Orthodoxy often insist that, in fact, we're just asking the saints to pray for us. I'm not sure that's always the case. I, I think I think 
probably sometimes people are actually praying to the saints, depending on what you think prayer is. And and so uh, but, I I definitely actually pray to saints, but we can talk about that more in a minute. So so I I I, I have struggled with that, and I've, I've especially struggled with the kind of veneration aspects of um, of saints, the, the idea that uh, y- you would go to your patron saints' relics and kiss them or whatever, that there was some sort of special power in them. And, you know, th- my, my, my resistance to that gave way the way a lot of my resistance to Catholicism gave way, which is I, I came to accept that they believe that... Um, things like grace are real substances, you know, that, that uh, uh, holiness is a thing that you actually have. It's not just something that's been declared. Like a, a holy person is actually holy and therefore has some sort of power. And so his relics have some sort of power. I still don't know that I would revere relics, but um, I, I think I understand that a little bit more. And I also understand the veneration piece, because I, if, if I've got it correct, the idea is not so much that you would venerate whatever saint you're venerating, but that in recognizing his holiness, you're also recognizing, or primarily even, recognizing the God who granted that holiness to him, uh, whose, whose grace he cooperated with in order to become holy, if that makes sense. Uh, so there's still a little bit of discomfort around some of that. I'm still Protestant to some degree, I'm afraid. But um, by and large, I've, I've kind of come over to the Catholic way of looking at these things, which is that there is not a hard and fast line between the living and the dead. And so it is completely appropriate for you to treat the saints the way you would treat an exceptionally holy person whom you met in in your day-to-day life, you know, you would, um, you, you would, you would want to be as close to them as you can. You would want to talk to them and hear what they had to say. You would ask them to pray for you. Um, I, I, I think that's, that's one of the things that kind of broke down my resistance. What about you, Victoria? Any, any major reluctances, changes? Um, was this a very easy sort of uh, aspect of the Catholic faith for you to um, enter into? Um, I don't know that it was easy. I definitely have, have felt sort of pulled along by the saints themselves. Um, I, I certainly have felt them speaking to me and praying for me. Um, there have been certain saints, especially uh, St. Teresa of Avila, who I took as my patroness, um, who have sort of kept reappearing in my life. Um, I'll, I'll say more about what a, a patroness is um, in a bit. But I think the biggest change for me is, um, I, I mentioned having grown up hearing the term communion of saints referred to as a, a kind of passive uh, entity. I definitely used to think of it as like the the guardian angel statue that you put in your car to to remind you that like prayer is a thing and it's bigger than you. <laughs> yeah. But but I I didn't really think of the communion of saints as an active communion. Um, I do now. I deeply believe that saints uh, pray for us and that they can that they can affect us and, and change um, our thought patterns and our, our spiritual patterns. And I, I derive a great deal of comfort from the fact that that community um, exists and that it's in my corner. Um, they care about a particular people or pursuit. There are saints that are connected to places and, uh, and human occupations. And that means the way that they love us is uh, nuanced and specific and and tied to us as human people. Um, Michael mentioned a lot of Catholics saying we don't pray to saints, uh, they pray with us. Um, I agree with that. I also think that saints are saints because they're on a different level than me spiritually. Um, You know, there's a difference in the word saint and the word saint with a capital S. Um, so that's that's something that has has changed for me. Um, also, I didn't really know anything 
before I became Catholic about the process of becoming a saint. Um, it's a really lengthy procedure to be nominated and then to be beatified and then to be sainted. Um, I, I also learned um, about the idea of a devil's advocate. Like I, of course, heard the phrase, but I, I didn't realize that um, that phrase is because when someone is uh, nominated to sainthood, there is a person, an actual person, who acts as the devil's advocate um, to, to try and bring an argument against them. And, uh, and if you are sainted, it's because your miracles prove your devil's advocate wrong. Um, so that was a, a really cool thing to learn. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Like, you know, it, it would it would kind of it would kind of suck to be that guy though. Oh, it like, depends. Uh, you know, Mother <laughs> Teresa's um, devil's advocate was Christopher Hitchens, who well and truly hated Mother Teresa. So, so he probably enjoyed it. Yeah, as I understand it, he was pretty into it. So you can so so you don't have to be Catholic to be a devil's advocate. No, um, it's just it's somebody somebody who argues against canonization. Although I have to say, I'm, I just looked it up. I, I don't think they use the devil's advocate anymore. Oh bummer. Uh, except in, they okay, so they they changed it in 1983. Now it's only when there's some controversy. Okay. So Mother Teresa, Christopher Hitchens was her uh, devil's advocate, but not everybody has a devil's advocate anymore. Maybe it would okay. be better if they did. I stand corrected. Okay. That, that's still still very very interesting. I just I, I just sort of assumed that you know there was some guy that you know pulls down a paycheck in the Vatican and just has the worst job. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that someone might get recruited who's super into it feels. I don't know, simultaneously perverse and appropriate, I guess. Well, it, it the person used to be a canon lawyer um, who, yeah, who, they well, would, yeah. who they would pay to do it. And I, I have to say, I mean, it's a real service to the church. I mean, the church doesn't want to get these things wrong because there's no way to revoke somebody's sainthood once once you've declared that they're a saint, you know. Mm-hmm. So you don't you don't want to say oh well you know that person turns out is still in purgatory because we didn't know about all these terrible things they did and surely they're not um, they're not purged of that yet um, so the 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 devil's advocate despite Christopher Hitchens I'm sure enjoying himself it, it it's a pretty important position or was a pretty important position and one that I don't think would be so bad if they brought back but you know I I'm not deep enough into Catholicism to, to have a, a fully formed opinion about that. You know, a lot of this is fresh again because the McCarrick report that was released a few weeks ago reveals that John Paul II might have known more than we thought he did about um, about clerical abuse. And, and so some people are wondering that, hey, if there had been a devil's advocate before uh, Saint Pope Saint John Paul II was made into a saint or his sainthood was declared maybe it wouldn't have happened because of things like this. So um, there, there actually is quite a bit of chatter right now about the devil's advocate and, and you know, what are the requirements for sainthood and things like that. That is interesting. But that of course, really of course, being a saint doesn't require you to have been sinless on earth. Uh, I mean, cause nobody yep. is right. Or if only two people are. Well, I, it occurred to me that uh, if uh, if you are a Catholic uh, who is is also uh, uh, ascribing to a feminist perspective, um, you are you are in a communion that has to regard as a saint people uh, figures who sometimes in, in 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 versions of church history are held up as you know. The misogynistic patriarchs who kept who kept the woman down. Um, I mean, you know, you've got Saint Jerome, and you know, <laughs> yeah, but nobody yeah. likes Saint Jerome. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I, he's I a saint. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, I that that's the conversation that a lot of people try to pick with me. <laughs> I know it's it's just I, it, it puts you in it puts you in a different um, 
it puts you in a different kind of relationship with church history, I think. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I appreciate the complexity of that relationship, but I mean, I, I, I won't deny the fact that, um, you know, I, the person who, um, who I chose as my patroness or who chose me, uh, to, to be connected to her as I actually see it is, you know, a, like the biggest proto feminist Catholic that there was. And that's part of the reason why I feel connected to her. So yeah, all, all that stuff can be true. Her or Hildegard von awesome. Bingen, right? Yeah. Hildegard also on my short list. <laughs> Well, we brought this up a few times, uh, the language of, of patronage. So what exactly is a patron saint? What's the function of a patron saint, I guess, theologically, but also in sort of the everyday piety of a Roman Catholic believer? And how do you, how do you get one? <laughs> For Victoria? Um, a patron saint is a saint assigned to you um, or or that you choose on your confirmation um, and typically that involves um, taking their name you have a confirmation name and you commemorate their feast day in, in some special way um, patrons are connected to places they're connected to occupations um, they're a patron saint of almost anything, um, and lots of saints are patrons of multiple things. Um, there are patrons of all kinds of cities, um, like St. Patrick, who we mentioned is the patron saint of Ireland. Um, As is my patron saint, St. Columba. Ireland has a bunch um, of patron saints. Okay, well, you know. I, that makes a lot of sense, given everything you know, if you know anything about um, the sort of colonial history of, of Ireland and England, um, there's a big back and forth there in terms of uh, Catholic and Protestant fighting, and that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea of a patron saint is just that um, because saints are interested in everything humans are interested in, and because saints are about... Um, connecting our mortal human lives to our immortal spiritual lives, it makes sense that human preoccupations are also saint preoccupations. So just the idea that um, if there's something that you do or a place that you are that you feel defines your identity, um, there's there's probably a, a, a saint for that. Um, and, and that should be a, a comforting thing. Yeah, in our last conversation, we had we had a talk about um, some of the some of the different saints who were associated with various things, and and often there's there's something uh, there there's a very direct connection. Like uh, you know, it makes sense that um, you know Thomas Aquinas would have particular associations, I guess, with with, with teaching and or but then you've got. Uh, the saints who were associated with particular medical ailments <laughs> because of the, uh, the picturesque ways in which they suffered martyrdom. Um, you know, so, uh, was it, is it St. Lucy who's associated with, with, uh, uh, opto optometry or uh, ophthalmology because her eyes taken out? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I wonder if, it makes it makes me wonder standing over here uh, how how the saint feels when all of a sudden um, Saint Lucy starts you know taking all the calls from the ophthalmologist and wondering <laughs> or does or, <laughs> I don't know maybe it's because I have uh, my 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 impressions of heaven are still far too influenced by Gary Larson's far side. <laughs> it's true there is a kind of far side quality to some of these, aren't there? My favorite is Saint Clair. Um, who is, among other things, the patron saint of television. And the reason for that is she was too ill to go to Mass, and the Mass was uh, miraculously projected onto the wall of her cell. Nice. <laughs> that that makes a certain degree of sense. 
or St. Nicholas's association with sailors and shipwrecks. And prostitutes. I don't know that one. Oh yeah, St. Nicholas is the is the patron of prostitutes, presumably for women trying to get out of prostitution. Well, I mean, I would hope so. St. Jude, who is the patron saint of our parish, is the patron saint of lost causes because um, nobody would want to pray to him because they assumed he was Judas Iscariot. So he would be the last saint you would pray for, and so he became the patron saint of lost causes. And ironically, one of the oh. most one of the most popular saints of all. I mean, everybody loves Saint Jude because he's who the suicides pray to, mm-hmm. or the the would be suicides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're, you're right. A lot of them are like I forget the guy's name, but one of the patron saints of students is someone who was murdered by his students. <laughs> yeah. Talk about Saint Carlo, Michael. I know you love him. He's not—he's not a saint yet. He's just blessed. But he's—he's the—he's oh, okay. one of the most recent. I was going to say most recent, but I think the founder of the Knights of Columbus was just beatified. But um, Carlo, oh, Acutus, i think his last name is—is is it like a fifteen-year-old? Yes, blessed Carlo Acutus. He's like I, a fifteen-year-old. I believe he was fifteen when he died. Yeah. A fifteen-year-old Italian teenager, who. Um, who set up a website that showed the manifestations, like the various manifestations of the miracle of the Eucharist. And he died of um, leukemia when he was 15. And um, now he is blessed. And he, you know, it really makes you think like this guy is younger. He was younger when he died than I, than I was when he died. You know, he, he was born after me. He died when he was 15, and yet apparently he achieved such a level of holiness that he's already in heaven. Uh, it really, it really makes you wonder what your excuses are, you know. But <laughs> I think it, if if he becomes sainted, there's a. Um, I, I think the popular understanding is that he's going to be the patron saint of video gamers because he loved video games, and in fact, his PlayStation controller is a second-degree relic now because he's he's beatified and a second degree first degree relic i should say is something like a part of your body and the second degree relic is something you're known to have handled so his playstation controller is a second degree relic i think just the internet not video games well, there's, i think he's going to be patron of the internet there's already because a patron I, saint I feel like of the internet another saint of video games but there's already a patron saint of the internet isidore seville lots of these things have multiple patronages and are multiple yeah. patrons and, and a lot of um, saints don't have patronages and I, I should also say that the catholic church is very very clear that just because someone is not officially declared a saint does not mean they're not in heaven um which is one way around the problem of why are there no Protestant saints in the Catholic Church? <laughs> because the the, the, <laughs> the Catholic position is not that Protestants aren't in heaven, um, but the other purpose of the of sainthood is to show a holy Catholic life, and so um, you know um, being a Protestant doesn't really do that, and so there aren't any protestant saints as far as i know and for that reason i'm not sure somebody like thomas merton will ever be um canonized i know a lot of people want him to but he had some very well publicized uh problems toward the end of his life that i i i think the church would be slow to canonize him just because of the example it would set but i don't know uh you know i'm not a canon lawyer right right though i i I think it is worth you know worth pointing out there is there is this process um beatification and then canonization but in order for that to even be pursued there have to already be those who who are committed to the idea that one already is a saint and are treating them as such yes that is that is a very good point david um and and so if you if you have someone whom you would like to see saint sainted it, people tell you that if you're in extremists um, to pray to pray to them or ask them to pray for you and see if a miracle happens because that that's what that's what it takes. Um, so Fulton Sheen, who almost became a saint last year, his his canonization has been delayed and they haven't really expressed the reason except they said that it wasn't it was not child molestation, which thank God. Um, he his he he 
was in line to be canonized because I think a baby had been stillborn and they they his family prayed to Fulton Sheen and the baby came back to life and the doctors couldn't explain it. And so that counted as a miracle. And so Fulton Sheen's prayers must have been honored and that suggests that he's in heaven. That's the um that's the idea. And when I say in heaven, of course, the alternative is not in hell, it's in purgatory, which takes, you know, Lord only knows how long to get out of. Centuries and centuries and centuries, or maybe no time at all. <laughs> as you, as I, I don't know if that book you uh, you read about Benedict the Sixteenth, one of his one of the things he's kind of suggested is that purgatory might be instantaneous, and in which case all these people are in heaven already, and we just don't know it yet. And you know, so you you Catholics are encouraged if there's somebody who you would like to see become a saint. Um, to to pray for their intervention and see what happens. If he said that, that would actually put him greatly in line with uh, some reformed thinkers who lean pretty heavily on uh, the experience of being in the extremity of death as a as that final sanctifying process. That's I didn't know uh, there were Reformed theologians who thought that. It would also put him in line with the Eastern Orthodox Church, because um, my understanding is a lot of Orthodox thinkers believe that there's a kind of instantaneous purgation. But my hope is that the Catholic and Orthodox churches are going to uh, reunite in my lifetime. Well, well if... if, if uh, well. Yeah, if purgatory is a place that is beyond time, as heaven is, perhaps, uh, then I don't know. Maybe maybe our sense of talking about time isn't, uh, you know, for the in in the terms of the conversation, maybe our maybe our notions of how long something takes uh, is is about as meaningful as our talking about the passing of time in Narnia. I, I think that's is, a very good point. Famous which is famously difficult to chart. <laughs> well, and and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the, the, the two people I really wanted to be my, to be my patron saint, um, neither one of them have been officially sainted yet. I wanted Gabriel Marcel, who I, who I do occasionally ask for his intervention, um, never for anything that would require a miracle though. So I don't know, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to, I'm going to get him canonized anytime soon. Um, although, although I did, um, when I was when I was leading up to my conversion the last year or so, I did have the very strong feeling that he he was rooting for me in some way. Maybe that's maybe that's just me being sentimental. I don't know. Um, but then the other one was Jacques Maritain, who's another French theologian philosopher, and he and he and his wife Raisa were actually uh, nominated for sainthood about 15, 20 years ago, and it's just the 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 gears are going slow. Um. But yeah, so I, 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 like a lot of people, I suppose I have, I have stake in the game. There's, there's people I would really like to see declared saints, um, because of their importance in my own life and thought. But, uh, you know, we'll all find out one day, right? Presumably. And I know Victoria wants Dorothy Day to be a saint, but Dorothy Day, I'm sure is not far. Yeah, I, I would have picked her had she been sainted in time, uh, I think. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's not true because I, I do feel like Teresa chose me, as I have said several times. Well, let's let's pick up with that uh, because we've talked about patron saints in general and the confirmation of saints um, or the, the canonization of saints. But uh, each of you... Uh, selected a saint um, as as part of your confirmation in in the church, and so how does how does that process of selection work? I mean, what how were you advised to go about that? I mean, I presume that you didn't just have like a lottery or something like that. There's something more significant than that going on. Well, there's tens of thousands of official saints, so the, the lottery would be difficult. <laughs> I would say but everybody wins, presumably. We we had fifteen or twenty people, I think. No, ten or fifteen in our uh, RCIA class, and I would say Victoria had her saint before everybody else. 
Um, and part of it is, I think, a number of people did not realize that they had to take Confirmation Saints, and so they hadn't been thinking about it for several years the way we had. Uh, I I went through quite a process, because I told you I wanted those two Frenchmen. They're not saints. Can't do anything about that, right? I, I, I kind of feel like the, I, I kind of feel like they're my honorary patrons. Um, but um, I was going to do Thomas Aquinas, but he's so connected with scholarship, and I'm not a scholar anymore. And then I thought about doing um, John Henry Newman, who was uh, blessed when I started the process and became a full saint last year, because he was a late in life convert, like I am, like uh, Gabriel Marcel and, and Maritain were, for that matter. But his patronage has to do with teaching, and I don't teach anymore. Um, there's not a patron, there probably is a patron saint of podcasters, and I just didn't look it up. Um, but what I ended up going with was St. Columba, who is the patron saint of poets, because I figured that that's still something I do even after I uh, left academia. Um, and also because I was very attracted to a particular story that some reports of the life of Columba have and some do not. So I don't know if it's true, but I like it, which is after he had already founded several monasteries, after he's already a pious, devout person, he gets into this um uh, unpleasantness where he goes to another abbey and they have a beautiful copy of the Psalter and he stays up several nights in a row copying the Psalter and there and is an argument between him and the the abbot of this abbey, Finian about who owns the copy he's made and he storms off and takes it with him and it starts a Irish civil war uh, in which his side although I don't think he ever fought, but his side waved that Psalter as like a battle flag. And he felt so bad about this, as well he should, right? Like he started a civil war over a Bible um, that he um, he left Ireland forever and went to Scotland, which is where he founded the monastery he's most famous for, which is Iona, um, which you, I mean, it's probably the most famous Celtic monastery. Um, and, and so I really, it really appealed to me that this guy who had already in some sense arrived, you know, um, could screw things up that incredibly badly over a matter of intellectual pride. I identified with that. And so I said, St. Columba is going to be my patron saint. In uh, Profile's interview that I did uh, a few years ago, uh, about uh, the rule of St. Columbanus, not the same guy. Uh, the uh, uh, One of the things we, we talked about in the interview was that the Irish monks were so um, were so persuaded of the the beautiful ideal of being a monk in Ireland that one of the most aesthetic things that they could think of doing was to moving somewhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That leaving Ireland was considered the ultimate ascetic sacrifice. It's so funny. Yeah. What about you, Victoria? You've already sort of told the story, but maybe maybe more of it. Okay. Um, so I, I said several times that I, I don't feel like I picked Teresa of Avila. I feel like she chose me. Um, the beginning of that story actually starts... Um, with my graduate school mentor, Anne. Um, I was in a course of hers on uh, lyric poetry, and we read quite a bit of the female mystics of the church, um, of which Teresa is one. Uh, she is most famous for writing a beautiful uh, book called The Interior Castles, which is um, like the the best kind of early modern allegory, uh, it talks about the journey that the soul takes to God, and there are these seven levels um, that God refines your soul through. And I just really fell in love with that text in that class, and started thinking more about um, Teresa. Couldn't stop reading uh, other things of hers. In the class, I went to Anne's office and, and was talking to her about it several times. And this was, I guess this would have been 2010. So this was a, a, a good 10 years ago. 
And one day in her office, uh, she looked at me and said, uh, Victoria, you know you're going to be Catholic, right? And I think I literally laughed in her face because I, at that point, was completely ignorant of Catholic history and mythology. I probably said something like, no, I'm not. Those people worship Mary, which is a terrible, ignorant thing to say, and I'm very sorry, and, you know, God has a sense of humor about all that stuff, so I'm a Catholic now. But um, a lot of the things that uh, that drew me to Teresa were just, um, in addition to Interior Castle being a gorgeous text that um, has so much to say about, um, so many relatable things to say, I think, about spiritual development and, and how a person of belief um, should move through the world, I recommend you should all read it. In addition to that, um, I draw a lot of strength as a Catholic feminist from Teresa's experience. Um, she becomes the first female doctor of the church. Um, she just fights against people who says that she and other uh, Carmelite nuns shouldn't use their voices to help people. She fights over and over. Um, she also, in her journals, um, talks about her struggles with anxiety and worry over and over. Um, Michael, jokingly, in conversation with me a lot, refers to Teresa as the patron saint of small, nervous women, um, which is, you know, uh, <laughs> a, a loving dig at me, or at least I, I like to think it's a loving one. Um, but I, I really love the idea that this saint who I pray to and with, who is praying for me, um, understands the way I understand the world, um, particularly as someone who struggles with anxiety and panic attacks. Uh, Teresa has this one very famous prayer um, that deals with anxiety that I pray at least once a day. If not uh, more than that, uh, you've probably heard it. It is, uh, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. That prayer has been an incredible comfort to me the past few years, um, particularly now in the middle of uh, coronavirus, the idea of uh, all things passing away except God and, and the constants and consistency of God um, really gives me a lot of uh, comfort in our current very confusing time. So I think I've probably uh, rhapsodized about Teresa enough. I'll stop talking. <laughs> No, I, I appreciate that because it, it, it sort of it sort of shows the way. Um, yeah, you, know, you, you you didn't just sort of roll the wheel of fortune, you know. Um, that, that there was a, you know, on your part, Michael, there was a kind of there was this this thoughtful, uh, almost a process of elimination. Um, whereas uh, you, Victoria, it se it seems as if uh, Teresa was uh, looking for you. Uh, in, a, in a kind of way, or, or just sort of kept showing up until you noticed her. Yeah, I, I really think that's true. And I, I will also say um, that whole experience has made me really grateful for uh, the mentors in my life who at various points have known me better than I knew myself. Uh, so y'all get you a mentor who's strong enough to say, hey, this thing is, is true about you, and then listen to them. Hmm. Well, that's just generally good advice. I, I should say that you were not, as a Catholic, required to have any particular devotion to your patron. Many people do, many people don't. What would it, what would it look like to not have a particular devotion to a saint that you still regarded as your patron? Um, you say that he was my confirmation saint, but I don't really... Pray to him. I don't celebrate his feast day. I don't. I don't. Uh, you know, talk to him or anything like that. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Well, I think we, we've we've made it to at least the end of the questions that I had had for for us. Um, but I feel like there's so many gaps. There's so many 
threads of conversation that we've started and didn't follow and so many more questions that arise out of the topics that we've discussed but before we before we finish um what what notes do you want to make sure are sounded before we end what thoughts have been dislodged that you want to get on the record victoria Uh, I guess the the thing that has been the biggest revelation to me about discovering that saints exist is just it is a a sort of more concrete way to think about the bigness of death and spirituality and immortality. Um, it's a way that I, as a mortal person can kind of wrap my brain around the parts of life I can't wrap my brain around and I, I appreciate that bit of, of spiritual assistance so if if saints are, are big and scary and incomprehensible to you um, that's kind of the point they're kind of supposed to be bigger than you and uh, and and lean into it maybe. But they're at the end of a road that you are also on, and that's that's important. They're not supernatural beings who. That's why I think like Carlo Acunas is so important because this is this is a guy who was born in like 1987 or something. You know, he was just a kid, and yet even during his lifetime he achieved this holiness that the rest of us might be tempted to just say, oh, you know, nobody can really do that. Um, but they can, and you can, and you will, even if it takes a lifetime and more than a lifetime. You too will be a saint. That's an important point. I think, like, everyone will be a saint, even if everyone will not be a capital S saint. Everybody, I mean, eventually... We'll know, you know, <laughs> at some point we'll know everybody who's in heaven and everybody will be a capitalist saint. But it is true that well, I mean, not everybody will be canonized on, here on earth. In fact, most people won't. Most people in heaven are not canonized. Well, the eschatological end game is the conformance of all those who are in Christ to the image of the glorified and resurrected Lord. That's exactly right. And I mean, that's what so, purgatory is, yeah. right? I mean, pur purgatory is this process of taking away from you the things that make you resistant to holiness and implanting in you the virtues necessary for holiness. Or sanctification, saint making. Yeah. Which yeah. is the, <laughs> the, the, the way Protestants call it, saint making, um, which is kind of a, kind of a fun way to spin that around and sort of toss it back at my Protestant brethren. Um, it's actually bound up in the term we use for it. Well, that was the question I wanted to ask you, David. First of all, a question I know the answer to, which is who would be your confirmation saint? Um, but then second, like, what role do the saints play in your life? Because you are probably more interested in the capital S saints than any Protestant I've ever met. Hmm. If, if, if I had to imagine that, that, that hypothetical moment, um, uh, it, it would be the venerable Bede. Um, you know, Bede is, uh, has, is one who is, he, he has been a companion, um, through my life and through my studies, um, uh, discovering him as an undergraduate just in, uh, uh, that one little snippet in the Norton anthology about uh -huh. the song of Cadman. Um, and then ever since then, um, you know, sort of finding him around the corner and every, everywhere that I research, um, learning from him, um, what it looks like to, uh, pursue and also to pursue with all the powers of your mind, but also to submit all the powers of your mind, um, to the truth of revelation and the lordship of Christ. Um, so in, in, in that sense, uh, what, what role does it play? Um, I'm a big sucker for Pietas. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I am, I am enormously sold on 
uh, having a a vocal and frequent recognition to um, to how we benefit from and what we owe to um, uh, the goodness, uh, the strength, the uh, the diligence, the holiness of uh, uh, the, those who are our spiritual forebears, um, and you know, be be I regard as one who is uh, specially uh, specially connected to the way I think of myself in the world, um, and from many different angles. Um, Do you feel I like have, he is in some way rooting for you? I won't ask if you if you pray to him, but do you feel like in his enjoyment of the beatific vision, he's rooting for you to also one day enjoy the beatific vision? I mean, <laughs> I know I have read that bit of Thomas Aquinas where the saints all know what they know because they behold um, in the beatific vision of God also sort of the fullness of God's plans and knowledge. That seems convenient. <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that that's not a kind of a back formation, but you know, okay, there, you know, I don't know. Um, what I do, what I do feel pretty convinced of is that um, the the greatest commandments are to love the Lord our God with the totality of our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, that uh, uh, no one who no one can love God and hate his brother, and therefore that those who are um, in my Lord's presence would have that fullest experience of love for God and love for the brethren, um, and that I think includes a, a a natural human connection with what with those who you were interested in in life and what you were interested in in life. I don't know that it necessarily means that Bede knows about me personally. Um, I don't know. that, that I, I feel a little... I would feel a little shy if I thought that, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, it might be nice if he got my fan mail. <laughs> <laughs> um... But I will tell you, you ask you ask what role they play. I mean, you know, I am not confident that they can that they can hear us. Um, and and uh, I, I have, you know, de- a definite theological. Um, it would it would be very it would be very difficult for me to overcome uh, my resistance to the idea of praying to a saint as an intercessor. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time um, parsing how that could be something that I could do without it resulting from uh, a, a lowering of my, of my regard for my sympathetic high priest um, who is the, my advocate with the father my Lord Christ Jesus, right? I like, I, I see, I, I don't see how I could, how I could call on anyone else in need, um, without it being a kind of, uh, a kind of lessening of my view of Christ. So, so I, I, I don't think that that's what either of you are saying, but I would have a very difficult time not re- 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 th- calling anyone else first it would be like telling my mother um that you know i had called one of her friends and then asked her friends to call my mom (laughs) you know i i have a hard time seeing how that could work on the other hand um i am confident that um though that bead that uh, that others um, that they pray for us that they care what happens um, and that the Lord works His will in the world through their petitions um, just as He works His will through ours probably more so because they can ask more wisely and more sincerely and more earnestly than we can um, 
I will say that uh, in my prayers, I will ask my Lord to greet them in my name, which seems a flippant thing to do. But then I remember that my Lord sees every sparrow that falls and counts the hairs on my head. So, so maybe he has in the ubiquity of his attention for all the tiny things. He can also have regard for my greetings to his people. But I'm, I don't know. I might just be the quirkiest Baptist you meet. I would say that's accurate. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. Uh, what have we got on tap for next week? Next week we're going to be talking about the American painter Edward Hopper. And we'll look at some of his paintings and just kind of uh, discuss what we see. Cool. I love art episodes. Super fun. Well, dear listener, if you have any comments uh, on our conversation today, feedback, um, saints you're interested in, or... Um, Whatever, whatever the feedback happens to be, uh, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post it in the show notes on our blog at christianhumanist.org. You can post them on our Facebook page, or you can tweet it at us at CH Radio Network. Um, also, uh, I'm still on Twitter. You're on Twitter, Michael. Kel Bummer. Um, I'm the real Grubzy. Victoria's on Twitter. I think yeah, Victoria's on Twitter. I don't happen to know your handle off the top of the head. Sorry. I'm at Victoria R. Farmer, I think. Is that right? That is right. Uh, All okay. right. All right. Way to play it straight. Um, I don't think, I think, I think Nathan abandoned it. Did he go to Parlor? <laughs> Can you imagine Nathan on Parlor spreading QAnon I, memes? <laughs> none of the saints live there. That's a, that's, that's actually Aww. why he's withdrawn from the show is he's starting a QAnon project that he wants, uh, <laughs> Wants time to be able to dedicate the time to. Oh man, Nathan uh, is actually Q. I think a lot of our listeners probably didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, little, little known facts. Um, we're so sorry, Nathan, but you're not here, so you can't stop us. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, in the meantime, I wish you all grand weeks on behalf of Michael Farmer and Victoria Farmer. Uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison, uh, liaison is Kristen Philippic, and uh, Michael's currently editing for us. And I'll leave you with this. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>